I can say this with some confidence. Doctrine alone won't get us where we need to be. I've been particularly focused on the doctrine of revelation, emphasizing the point that the Bible is a part of God's special revelation to humanity. I just don't think that resonates with a lot of people. Indeed, I think it's an important point. We should look at the Bible and we should say with confidence, this is not an archaic book written by men. This is the Word of God breathed out, inspired men who were carried along by the work of the Holy Spirit to write down and then preserve God's breathed out Word. That it is authoritative, applicable, and that it is the only guide for the way that we should live our lives. Maybe I should be a little less nerdy about it. What is our focus for 2023? It's simply this. Worship. Revival in the church is hinged to the authenticity of our worship. Fortunately for us, as we consider what it means to make worship our theme and our priority... We don't have to figure it out on our own. But we do have a guidebook. We do have instructions. We do have an explanation of what genuine worship looks like in God's Word. So I invite you to turn not only to the theme of this coming year, but the theme verse in John chapter 4, verse 23, where you'll be reminded Jesus is passing through Samaria. And what's exciting about this is I've already preached this passage to you all before. And, but I want to focus on just one verse this morning. Verse 23. As Jesus is speaking with a Samaritan woman at the well, they're involved in some sort of conversation. She's realized that this man that is speaking to her is indeed a prophet. He's indeed something special. There's some spiritual truth in him that there, she is seeking. She wants this water that he, he has offered her and she asks him, Where's the correct place to worship? And Jesus, like a good teacher, says, You're asking the wrong question. It's not a matter of where, it's not a matter of when, it's a matter of how. The real question for true worshipers who want to know what genuine worship looks like is how is it that we are supposed to worship? With that said, by way of introduction, let's pray and prepare to read from God's Word. Our Father, we thank You for this morning. Lord, we thank You for the direction that You are setting us on. Lord, we pray that You would guide us this morning in worship. Lord, we know that today is a day where we need Your Word. God, we pray that whatever's happened this morning, whatever's taken place, whatever's brought us here, whatever the drive was like, whatever the news radio announcer person in the radio was saying, God, whatever clamor exists inside of our minds and our hearts, help us to set it aside and to focus on you. God, we pray that as your word is preached, that our mind would be dedicated to you and to your word. Lord, we pray that you would give us a heart that understands these things, that you would make us sensitive and soft, that we would be receptive to the truth preached, and that we would know how to respond to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus says, 
But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. It's a little verse. I'm going to preach half of it this morning. As I was preparing my notes, I realized that within that little verse, I do not have enough time to keep you all here because surely there will be protest if I preach this entire message. Thank you. (laughs) So this morning we'll focus on just the first part. Jesus begins, the hour is coming and is now here. If you remember in our Christmas series, we've already been in the book of John and John's account of the gospel life of Jesus Christ. And we found that this hour, the hour, is a significant theme in what he is presenting towards us. It continually comes up in John's writing. The hour is coming. What that means for us as we look at what Christ is teaching about genuine and authentic worship is that the hour is coming when genuine worship will all be all that is before us, all that is available, all that is necessary. All the distractions will be set aside and all that will remain is genuine worship. The hour is coming when we will live in a state of worship. Indeed, I would contend that this hour is a reference to the kingdom of God. And here's something that we know. The kingdom of God, well, it's a little bit confusing because it's not just yet before us in the future, but it is now. Look at Jesus' words. He says, the hour is coming, that is, that it's yet to come, and is now here. Figure that one out. The Bible consistently presents to us things that seem to live in tension with one another. And indeed, one of those tensions is the present state of Christ's kingdom on earth. The kingdom of Christ is so remarkable for the Christian because it is what we call the church. We call the church God's kingdom. It is people who live under his leadership, under his rule. And indeed, so long as there are people who are submitted to the authority of Christ, the kingdom of God is present. But I promise this, we do not live in the kingdom of God until it has been fulfilled completely in the consummation of Christ's kingdom when new Jerusalem descends from the heavens to be placed on a new earth, when we are completely redeemed, when all things have been redeemed as Christ has promised. Even so much as our salvation. The Bible speaks of our salvation in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Your salvation is a gift from God, and the Bible calls you justified presently, right now. In the same book, Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Your redemption is not yet. So then, the redemption promised to us by Christ alone is that you have been justified in Him, but you long, eagerly, waiting for the justification, for the redemption that lies before us in our glorification. The kingdom of God exists anywhere. Christians will make the Lord of their life none other than Jesus Christ. Surely his kingdom is anywhere he is in charge. It exists in the church. It exists in your homes. 
It exists in every decision you make throughout your day. But his kingdom is coming. There is a day coming when every knee will bow. We look forward to that day. Our justification, like our redemption, is declared in the present. We anticipate the formal enacting of the verdict, of the final judgment that awaits before us at the judgment seat. Romans 3.28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We're presently justified, not just redeemed, presently. Romans 2.13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. There's a tension between what is and what is yet to come. According to Michael Byrd, what we think about evangelism, justice, ecological responsibility, pastoral care, budgets, politics, and ethics is based on what God has done and will yet do for his people and for creation through Jesus Christ. The vision of the New Testament church impines on the present and directs our sense of identity and mission. What is worship then? What is genuine worship but acknowledging this kingdom that is yet to come? Prayerfully anticipating the day when its perfect consummation will be revealed. What is worship? but living in that kingdom? What is worship but saying the kingdom is now in my heart as I worship my Creator, as I glorify Him in all that I do? Jesus' earthly ministry is dedicated to ushering in this kingdom. He demonstrates for us what worship looks like. All of His teachings point towards understanding the kingdom. The kingdom now exists where Christ reigns, which should be in the individual hearts of every believer. It should be in the leadership and rulership of the New Testament church. While we anticipate the day, Philippians 2, 10 and 11, when every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess that Christ is Lord. There will be no dissension. It will be evident. Well, we turn then to our passage, this hour coming, this ushering in of Christ's kingdom, of existing in his kingdom, of focusing our minds upon being in his kingdom and genuinely worshiping God. Jesus continues, worshipers, true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him. The emphasis of this passage is undeniably on truth. Now, someone's going to protest and say, well, there's spirit in there too. I'm not dissenting. I want you to look at the words that John is using. He writes, what kind of worshipers? True worshipers. How will they worship? In spirit and truth. Here we have an adjective describing the worshipers, true. We also have in the prepositional phrase, that how will they worship in spirit and truth? True worship must be the priority of glorifying God. True worships. What is true worship? How are we supposed to understand true worship? 
We note that it seems to be the emphasis. Furthermore, our text begins with a contraction. Verse 23 starts like this, but. But. Jesus himself, in speaking with a Samaritan woman, is contradicting the Samaritan woman that he is speaking with. He's writing and he's speaking in this way because he's addressing what is not true. He's clarifying, he's correcting, he's reproving the Samaritan woman who says, how are we supposed to worship? She says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And you say that in Jerusalem is the place that we ought to worship. And Jesus says to her, but. True worship doesn't have to do with these things. This should be our focus, that we should know what true worship is. If we are to be a church that is truly worshiping God, we must do so in truth. That means worshiping God in the way that he has prescribed in his word. Hear me. We cannot worship God in a way that he has not prescriptively told us to worship Him according to His revealed will for believers. Over Christmas time, there were some churches that brought in sleighs and hung them on cables in their sanctuaries and flew down Santa Claus on top of a stage who had live reindeers prancing down God's house. This is not true worship. This is a circus. Christian worship should never reflect Cirque du Soleil. Christian worship is prescriptive according to how God has told us to worship. In fact, if you consider for a moment, if there is anything God is more zealous for in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is authentically worshiping Him. If we are to be a church that is truly worshiping God, we must worship Him according to what has been prescribed in His Word. This is called, for those interested in my nerdy asides, the regulative principle of Scripture. John Calvin wrote, We may not adapt any device in our worship which seems fit to ourselves, but look to the injunctions of Him who alone is entitled to prescribe. Therefore, if we have him approve our worship. This rule, which everywhere enforces with the utmost strictness, must be carefully observed. God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned in His Word. Now, I would offer a word of caution for anyone that would take the prescriptive regulative principle of Scripture too far. Indeed, there are some who would say, Perhaps even our worship should only include the musical instruments that are found in the Scripture. Bring out your harps and lyres. We can take this, I believe, too far. Um, but my point this morning isn't to dispute what's there and what's not and what too far looks like. We can save that for another time. And in fact, it doesn't matter to me as long as you're genuinely worshiping God according to the convictions that He's placed within your heart and according to His Word because we know that God's Leadership of the Spirit will never contradict His Word. I just say that as a word of caution. The basis that we must look at is that the Scriptures alone are our guide for faith. The Scriptures alone are our guide for practice. The Scriptures alone are how we are to glorify God. This is not something that we do in ignorance. The Samaritans worshipped in ignorance. If you're 
familiar with your Bible history, the Samaritan people, the way that they wound up where they were, is they had bad kings that led the people away towards synchronism, that is, adopting the beliefs of the world around them and then worshiping in a way that was not offensive. Consider this, rarely are Christians ever asked to actually run away from their faith. We're only asked to compromise our faith, to make small little adjustments that would accommodate those who do not know the true God. This was the case of the people in the northern tribes. This was the result of the Samaria by the time that Jesus would come to be incarnate on earth. And the Samaritan woman, while they had many Jewish bases and they had some semblance of what it meant to worship God, the reality is they only observed the first five books of the Bible as authoritative. They didn't have even as much scripture as the Jews did in Jesus' day. And so the Samaritans worshiped in ignorance. Now try this on for size. Many Christians today worship God in ignorance. Why do we do that? Well, it's too hard to know what this book says. Oh, it's too difficult. That's for people that, well, their job is worshiping God. First, you've misunderstood what your job is as a saved believer. Either you're not saved or you've completely missed the mark. This is the priority of every born-again believer to glorify God. In fact, the Westminster Confession says in the Catechism, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. Why do you exist? Why were you created? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Well, I don't want to do that. It just doesn't sound like fun to understand the regulative principle of Scripture. It sounds really boring, really dry. You don't know what you're missing out on. Loved ones, this morning, when you hear me speaking about truth, do not... Paint in your mind some image of dry academic seminary, dry reading of Scripture, but understand that the picture of worship that you have in your head with people praising God, moved emotionally, worshiping Him with all that they are, body, soul, and mind. When you conjure that image in your mind, that comes from a place of truth. That comes from a place of relishing and delighting in God's Word. It's not boring. It's only boring if you make yourself do it. I'll save this for this evening. We'll talk about this more this evening. But may I point out the end of verse 23? The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. You can't make yourself worship this way. God, the Father, seeks people to worship Him this way. The Spirit guides people to worship this way. In fact, the Spirit guides people into truth. We're not at liberty to add to Scripture's regulative principles to suit ourselves. I want to remind you of the story of Uzzah, the Kohathite, who was given the responsibility in, I believe it's 1 Kings, I didn't put it in my note, 2 Samuel, my bad, 
In 2 Samuel, he's given the responsibility the Kohathites have the job of carrying the Ark of the Covenant. God gave the people of Israel two rods that they're supposed to use to lift the Ark of the Covenant so that they can carry it. The rods are important because they pass through two rings and they prevent the people from actually touching what God has declared is holy. Here's how much God cares about the way that we worship Him. Uzzah was smart and creative. It's a lot of work to carry these things, and we have a long distance to go. Let's put it on a cart. We still won't touch it. We're still obeying the principle that God has given us to worship Him. And what happens as the cart tips over and Uzzah says, let me help. He reaches out and he saves the cart from falling because it's holy. This is the Ark of the Covenant. And he dies immediately. He's struck dead by no other than a God who is zealous for the proper worship. Self-styled worship is unacceptable to God. Consider this, self-styled worship is not worship of God at all. Rather, you are worshiping the one who has prescribed worship. You're worshiping yourself. When we decide what our worship should look like, when we set the priority of worship among us, when we say that the way that I want to worship God because it suits me, who's the one really being glorified in that? The person to whom worship suits The world and many childish Christians make the grave mistake of misunderstanding what the Bible calls idolatry. We paint idolatry up as this unapproachable, just incredibly apparent sin that lives in our world. Idolatry is giving worship to anything that is not worthy, namely, anything that is not God. Surely idolatry is extreme, but it is not only present in the erection of a statue or the bowing down before it. Idolatry is when we misalign our priorities. Idolatry is when we bend to adapt to a will rather than God's. I know everyone in this church this morning, because, you know, it's New Year's Day. It's my favorite Sunday of the year because I get to preach about things that people don't often get to hear about because, well, here's what happens. It's the least attended Sunday of the year. And so we're all sitting back. Well, these are the committed Christians. I say this lovingly. We cannot sit back and be thankful that we're not like those churches who are bringing live reindeer into their worship services. As one illustration... I want you to consider a church singing God Bless America for a patriotic service. Just for a second, who's being worshipped in that song? The only thing that brings glory to God alone in God Bless America is the worship of a beautiful creation. Other than that, we beseech the one who deserves glory to worship us with his provisions. Rather than worshiping God, we say, God, bring glory to me. Rather than bringing glory to God, we sing, God, bring glory to me. Who's being worshiped with that song? 
It idolizes a land. It makes creation the ultimate instead of worshiping the creator. It is no different than the idolatry of Romans chapter 1. It wrongly calls this land our home when scripture clearly points us to identify with our home in God's presence, not anywhere else. I like the song. Don't get me wrong. I like God Bless America. I enjoy singing it. I enjoy singing it at patriotic events. I'm proud to be an American. I'm fortunate and blessed and thankful that God has made me an American. But when I come to worship God, I'm in His kingdom. He is Lord of my life. That song has no place in the church. It is idolatry. Worship with the wrong attitude is just as deplorable as worshiping in the wrong way. We are commanded away from idolatry. We are warned against wrong forms of worship, of self-styled worship. We should also mention that the failure of a wrong attitude is exactly what is wrongfully worshiping God in truth. The prophet Amos in chapter 5, verse 21, God says, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up for me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I've said that the passage of this text is that we should worship in truth. There is another side to this that is unavoidable. We must worship in the Spirit. In fact, to worship without the Spirit is not to worship in truth. Also, to worship without truth It's not to worship in the Spirit. It's just as important worshiping in a way that accords with God's Word is that we should be worshiping. That we should actually be worshiping. That is, that it should be an act of our spirit. Let me try to clarify this because I think as I come to passages like this that use words like spirit, it's very easy to make this appear to be something that's just incomprehensible but I think it's actually more simple than we make it. The word for spirit in Greek, the language in which the New Testament is written, is pneuma. It is in reference to the part of a person that cannot be physically observed. In fact, the word pneuma is also the same word used in Greek to describe the wind. What is spirit? It is simply the unphysical parts of a human being unphysical parts of a human being. What do you mean? I'm all here. No, I think there are parts of you that cannot necessarily be observed. Just like the wind, I can see evidence of the wind, but I can't actually see it. I can feel the wind. I know that it's there, but I can't actually touch it. In the ancient world, The word pneuma was used to be all-encompassing of these things. Another meaning for the word, not just spirit, but also inner self. It is the inner self 
of a person. It is their mind, their attitude, their emotions, their reactions, all of these things that we know exist, but we're unable to actually take apart and observe. Some of you this morning are looking at me and you can say, well, I know that he has thoughts because he's speaking. Or perhaps you've heard me speak and I've ruffled your feathers or stepped on your toes and you say, I know that he has thoughts, but I can't see them because they're unintelligible. Let me give you confidence that as I look out among you, I can say that I know that there are thoughts, but I cannot see them. I seem to have bored the congregation this morning. Say that as a joke. To worship in spirit is in reference to everything that is inside of us that is not just physical. Yes, there is a posture to worship. Yes, when we pray, we do certain things. But the reality is what we are called to do is to worship with our mind, with our emotions, with our intentions, with our desires, with everything that is inside of us that cannot be touched. It matters that we worship God with our spirit because it is our spirit that observes who God actually is. As an aside, look in verse 24. Jesus gives us this exact demonstration in his explanation. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. Isn't this interesting? In the Old Testament, this instruction of worship that God gave the people, he made the Ark of the Covenant so holy that to touch it would immediately result in being struck dead. He gave the Jews in Jerusalem, the erection, as they traveled in the wilderness, the erection of the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. He gave the people in Jerusalem the temple built through the kingdom of Solomon. Where are we to worship? In the Old Testament text, it's clear that these places, all of these special areas that God has dedicated for holy and dedicated worship to Him, they exist because it's a picture of God's presence on earth. Do you all know anything? Where is God? Speaking of confusing worship, come, O Holy Spirit, fill this place. Where is the Spirit of God? God's everywhere. Where can I go from your Spirit, O Lord, the psalmist says? Where can I escape from you? As I rise up, you are there. When I lie down, you are there. Where can I go from you? If we're going to worship God genuinely, for some, this is something quite scary. Where can I hide my sins from God? Consider this. Every sin you've ever committed, God was there with you doing it. You committed it before Him. There is no hiding. This isn't a parent who's found you out. This is a God all around you, all surrounding you, present in everything and existing everywhere. All of the attributes of God, His love, His goodness, His mercy, His justice, His holiness, all exist everywhere. And how are we to worship Him but surrendering the parts of ourselves that are all of us, all of our attitude, all of our heart, all of our intentions, all of our desires to Him? 
David told Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28 verse 9, advice that I believe every father ought to be giving to their children. As for you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart that is a willing soul. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all minds' thoughts. If you search for him, he will be found. But if you abandon him, he will cast you away forever. We cannot escape God. Our worship must acknowledge this. And so for the church this morning, we think of worship as coming to a place. Perhaps we think of worship as setting aside time on our calendar. That is the wrong approach. Corporate worship, that is what we do when the church gathers as we come together, is an overflow. It is the building up of worshiping God on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and coming together and saying, my heart has been filled so much for the desire of the Lord that He would be glorified in me that I cannot wait, I cannot help, but to sing praises and glory to His name. I cannot help, I've been filled so much in my Bible study, so convicted with the burden of this world that I cannot help but to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to my loved ones. It's almost cliche to say that worship stops at some point or that we don't stop worshiping. But have you really spent time thinking about what that principle means? You want authentic worship in the church? Worship on Monday. Worship on Tuesday. Worship Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Wake up early in the morning. Worship God on your way to church. As you fight with your loved ones about what it means to get ready and to do it fast enough and to make breakfast, ask yourself, am I worshiping God? That way when you get to church, as you're filled with the saints and you realize that this kingdom of God doesn't just exist in your heart, that it's not just yet to be consummated sometime in the future, but you realize that it exists in the presence of the church that has gathered together visibly and locally, that as you come together and you worship in the prescriptive ways of Scripture and you sing songs to God, that your heart would be filled with not just lip service. God says He detests your lip service that it will be an overflow. Can we then put all of our attention on worshiping in truth and forsake worshiping in spirit? Can we do the other? Can we forsake worshiping in spirit to focus on worshiping in truth? No, we cannot. Many would lead you to believe that worshiping in spirit is all that matters. That studying this book that understanding what the Bible says is simply too much work, and that even if we stray, even if we go off course from time to time, that everything will be okay so long as the principle of glorifying God is in some veiled way present in what we do. These people are wrong. Others would try to rob you of the life transformation and joy that is palpable when we are truly given over to God in all that we are. Such studies of the word resemble philosophy more than they do theology for God. I'll leave you this morning with a quote from John Piper. These words are stinging but they accurately weigh the balance of worshiping in spirit and in truth. 
Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church full of artificial admirers of God. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates hollow people who refuse the disciple of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God are rooted in truth and are the bone marrow of biblical worship. True worshipers worship God. Every kind of superficiality of worship is an affront to a holy God that gives us instructions for worshiping Him. I'd invite you back this evening as we continue this message, looking at what it means to be true worshipers and considering what it means to have a Father seeking us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that as we turn to you, that you would be glorified in all the things that we do to worship you. We pray that you have been worshiped in the preaching of your word, that we've been faithful, and that our application as we leave this place would be worship. Lord, we pray that as we rise to sing songs to you, it would be from an overflow of our heart. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?